Please open your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 9. We begin at verse 13 and continue to the end of the chapter at verse 31. Second Chronicles 9, 13 to 31. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, besides that which the explorers and merchants brought. And all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the land brought gold and silver to Solomon. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold, 600 of shekels of beaten gold went into each shield, and he made 300 shields of beaten gold, 300 of shekels of gold went into each shield, and the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with pure gold. The throne had six steps and a footstool of gold, which were attached to the throne, and on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests. While twelve lions stood there, one on each side of a step on the six steps, nothing like it was ever made for any kingdom. All Solomon, King Solomon's drinking vessels were of pure gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king's ships went to Tarshish with the servants of Hiram. Once every three years, the ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and of gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And he ruled over all the kings from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. He made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And horses were imported for Solomon from Egypt and from all lands. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon from first to last, are they not written in the history of Nathan the prophet and in the prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite and in the visions of Iddo the seer concerning Jeroboam the son of Nabat? Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel forty years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. May God be praised through the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We know this is not merely a historical record of a bygone age, but you are displaying to us your kingdom as it once was then, as it looked forward to what it will be. When your son returns, uh, Father, show us your glory, the glory that is in your son. We pray this in his name. Amen. As Second Chronicles concludes tonight, its portrait of Solomon and his reign, we search for words to describe him. Uh, since he's Solomon, we, of course, call him wise. We name him a builder for his temple and his palace. He was a great worshiper, and he amassed great riches and power. 
Now, if we add all those descriptions together, they add up to a single word, glory. It's a picture of glory. Now, the problem with earthly glory was legendarily spoken into the ears of Roman generals as they rode through their capital city for their triumph when they'd gained a famous victory. Julius Caesar, who celebrated many such triumphs, commanded that a slave dressed in white would ride in the commander's chariot, and he would hold a golden crown over his his head. And the slave would whisper over and over into his ears these words, Sic transit gloria mundi. Thus passes the glory of the world. The American general George Patton was fond of putting it more directly, All glory is fleeting. Well, Solomon's place in the Old Testament was to represent a different kind of glory, one that does not pass away. Scholars of the Bible point out that various figures in the Old Testament serve as what we call types of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek word is tupos, and it would be like a die that stamps an image. That was the original meaning. Abraham was a type of Christ as the covenant head who has promised the salvation of his people. David, the man of faith, was a type of Christ in his royal kingship. Although Joseph is never called a type of Christ, a careful study of his life will see him as a type of Jesus' resurrection life. Solomon fits into this picture as another type of the coming Messiah. His calling was to prefigure the glory of the Savior and Lord. Second Chronicles will reveal that Solomon's earthly splendor and glory actually represented a fleeting moment in Israel's history. The glory of his reign passed away with him. But the glory he displayed actually was Christ. And here's how Solomon himself sang of him in Psalm 72, 29. Of Christ, he says, blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Well, the glory of Solomon is worked out three ways in these verses. The glory of his wealth, the glory of his throne, and the glory of his wisdom. First, we have the glory of Solomon's wealth. That's the main thing highlighted in this passage, his extraordinary wealth. Verses 13 to 14, now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, besides that which the explorers and merchants brought. Now, 666 uh, talents of gold, by the way, there is no apparent relationship to that number and the mark of the beast in Revelation 13. But that was an extraordinary annual income. It's tons of gold. It would measure in billions of dollars today. And he received this income, we gather from all that's been said of him, through his taxes and his trading empire. He controlled all the great trading routes. He required tariffs from them all. It brought in all this wealth. And added to that bounty is what came in through explorers and merchants. Further still, verse 14 says, All the kings of Arabia and the governors of the land brought gold and silver to Solomon. In fact, so abundant was the gold of Solomon's reign that it absolutely devalued silver. It was as common as stone, we read. Verse 20, all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. 
Not many of us, I think, drink from golden goblets at every meal, but Solomon and his people did. We're told that silver was not counted as anything in the days of Solomon. Verse 20. Well, gold is the metal of kings. It's a symbol of glory. That's why the Lord's temple was inlaid entirely in the purest gold. It was God who made gold. Gold is good. It reflects the riches of his reign. Genesis 2.13 tells us that there was rich gold in the Garden of Eden. And God had promised Solomon that because he had prayed at the beginning of his reign for wisdom and discernment rather than for riches... The Lord said, I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings had who were before you. Second Chronicles 1.12. Well, God now fulfilled that promise in Solomon's lifetime. So verse 22 says that he excelled all the kings of the earth in riches. Now, the golden wealth of Solomon's city was meant to reflect the glory of God and Solomon's own majesty as king over God's people. The great riches provided to him and his nation reminds us of God's desire to bless us with an overwhelming goodness and glory. This is not contrary to God's desire. He wants to bless his people with riches and glory. The splendor of Solomon's court was a display of the Lord's bounty to those who walk in his ways. Now, so wealthy was Solomon in gold that he devised a rather ingenious way of storing his treasure while at the same time attractively displaying it. We see in verses 15 and 16 that he made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of beaten gold went into each of them. He made 300 shields of beaten gold with 300 shekels of gold into each shield, and the king put them into the house of the forest of Lebanon. That building is Solomon's own royal passage, so he surrounded himself with the display of glory that God had given. Each one of these shields was worth a fortune, and he had hundreds of them. He recorded what he thought of this golden glory in Psalm 72. He was praying about his own kingship, and he wrote, Long may he live, may gold of Sheba be given to him, Psalm 72, 15. Now Solomon's real aim was that God would see, would receive glory for the majesty of his kingdom. He says in that psalm, Blessed be God, the, the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Well, as if that treasure store of gold wasn't enough, his trading ships also poured in wealth of various kinds. Look at verse 21. For the king's ships went to Tarshish with the servants of Hiram. Once every three years, the ships of Tarshish used to come in bringing gold, silvery, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Leslie Allen calls this display a kaleidoscope of opulence. Now, Tarshish was probably in today's western Spain, although the name could be used symbolically of distant ports in general. After the ships would sail into harbor from their long voyages, new things of beauty and wonder would be disgorged from all over the ancient world to enrich the lives of Solomon's people, along with tales from exotic lands. Well, almost a thousand years before Christ, Solomon's golden reign in this way achieves the high-water mark of the Old Old Covenant. And the message to a reader of the Bible, particularly in those times, was very clear. 
You think of how Abram had been a, a pilgrim in this land, and God had promised him that he would one day be the possessor. His descendants would possess the land, but even Abraham could not have imagined the riches and the glory that God intended to give. Or you think then of Joseph going down into Egypt and Israel goes with him and they serve for hundreds of years in bitter poverty. Surely during that time, the faithful would have encouraged others to trust in the Lord, to hold fast in his promises and Solomon's golden city displays the result of their faith over time. Then Israel made its exodus, and they had the long, painful desert journey. And if you remember, the people complained that God wasn't faithful. God was old. He only brought us into the desert to kill us. But you see, under Solomon's time, the lie is put to that disparagement of God's goodness. It also puts to shame every claim today that God is not faithful. Cyril Barber notes, under Solomon, the Lord blessed his people, so they prospered and became the envy of the surrounding nations. Now, most pointedly, the wealth of Solomon's kingship is meant to point believers forward to Jesus Christ, to what Paul describes as the riches of his glory, Romans 9.23. Christians are taught to look forward, for instance, we look forward to the true Jerusalem that will come after Jesus returns, the eternal city of Christ and his bride, which will be so splendid that the streets are paved with gold. That's something not even Solomon thought to do. And yet the chief riches of Christ are possessed by believers even now. Simply put, the riches that Jesus gives to his people in this present world are greater than gold could ever buy. First Peter 1.18 says that we have been redeemed from sin, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And Ephesians 3.16 says it's according to the riches of his glory. Now, what's he going to talk about with the riches of his glory? He's going to talk about the inward strengthening of the Holy Spirit in our inner being. And far more glorious than to be surrounded by golden shields, we have the very Spirit of God dwelling in us with power. James 2 verse 5 adds that when we were spiritually impoverished, God chose us to be rich in faith. And my friends, faith is a more valuable resource. It's more valuable now. It's certainly more useful in eternity than even stacks of gold bars. We should cherish and nourish our faith with God's word. First Timothy 6.18 says we can be rich in good works so that even now, even if we don't have any gold, we can be prosperous in love and goodwill. And all of these blessings and more are found in Jesus Christ to those who believe in his gospel. A glory of wealth greater than Solomon's gold is found in Christ so that even the poorest believer is richer than Solomon in splendor. Speaking of the salvation blessings which he alone can give, Jesus says this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He was talking about faith in him. And we receive things far more precious than the glory of Solomon's gold. 
Well, in addition to the glory of Solomon's wealth, the chronicler highlights then the splendor of Solomon's throne. Look at verses 17 to 19. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with pure gold. The throne had six steps and a footstool of gold, which were attached to the throne. Which, and on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests, while twelve lions stood there, one on each end of a step on the six steps. Now, the actual throne on which Solomon sat was overlaid in the finest gold. Of course it was. It was itself made of ivory, and that's also a precious material. And it was lifted up. It was high and exalted above the people. And then we're told that built onto the sides of the throne were golden images, two great images of lions, which, of course, is a universal universal symbol of royal majesty. And there were six steps that lifted the throne up to a high platform. Each step was flanked by a golden lion. You may remember that Solomon hailed from the tribe of Judah and how their forefather Jacob had designated that tribe for kingship, saying Judah is a lion's cub, Genesis 49.9. Presumably these 12 lions then represent the 12 tribes of Israel, each all of them together under the rule of that royal house. Of course, the lion also symbolized Solomon's father, David, who as a young man had subdued a lion, 1 Samuel 17:34. Well, the point of Solomon's glorious throne is made clear in verse 19. Nothing like it was ever made for any kingdom. Well, as was befitting a lion-like king like him, Solomon boasted strong military forces. Look at verse 25. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. Now, in those days, only a king could have such strong mounted forces, and Solomon's was extraordinarily potent. Like armored forces today, his light and heavy cavalry required a massive logistical commitment. There were stables, there were grooms, there was grain and barley, all that had to be farmed and handled. There were mechanics to maintain the chariots. It's a massive undertaking to have armored forces of this type. But, but like Solomon's golden shield that, shields that spoke of his significant wealth, these horsemen, they're not there merely for parades. No, Solomon could project at great distance overwhelming military might. He could subdue and cow any threat to his royal will. He was glorious in in his throne because of his might. Well, if a great king needs a glorious throne and a mighty army, he also needs extensive lands. And Solomon had these, verse 26. He ruled over all the kings from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. Now, these boundaries from the great river of Mesopotamia to the wadi of Egypt happened to be, you may realize, the precise boundaries that God had promised to Abraham many centuries earlier. It's a large, massive empire. Now, imagine Genesis 15. That's the chapter where Abraham's looking out at the stars. He has no inheritance he can think of. It's just him and his his wife. They don't even have children. And God says, you're going to have offspring as numerous as the stars in the skies. Your descendants' land is going to go from the Mesopotamian River to the border of Egypt. It, It actually happened. Why? Because God keeps his promises. So here's another reminder from Solomon that when we trust God's promises and we prayerfully wait for God's timing, 
our reward will be in great abundance. He will not fail. I think of the chronicler's original readers in the 400s. They were returning weak from their Babylonian exile. They're coming back to the city of Jerusalem, which had been shattered by an enemy. They themselves were weakly dependent upon a a pagan imperial power and, and his favor. But they're reminded that faith in God's word can make them strong. It can make them secure in the land of promise. Now, if you are familiar with the law of Moses and you read of Solomon's horses and chariots, it may occur to you there's actually something of a problem with what we read. For God had forbidden his kings to rely on this kind of earthly power. It's very interesting that while God says that he would give Solomon his riches and that he had them, God never said that he would give him horses and chariots because, in fact, he had forbidden them in Deuteronomy chapter 17. That is a problem that we have. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt That's what Deuteronomy says, in order to acquire many horses, for the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. We'll look down at verse 28, and it very significantly points out that the horses were imported for Solomon from Egypt and from all other lands, directly contrary to the instructions in the chapter of Deuteronomy for future kings like him. And so it seems, and how Often it happens, how difficult it is for it not to happen, that all this earthly glory, all the gold, all the wealth had turned Solomon's heart away from relying on the Lord. His father, King David, had not trusted in mounted forces. In fact, he wrote this in Psalm 20, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Well, By that standard, Solomon was not trusting the name of the Lord his God, but in his glorious wealth and, of course, all the things that could buy. Now, it is precisely in this respect that the glory of Christ's throne is and will ever be different from Solomon's. You think of the great statement in Psalm 45, there's so many of them, but Psalm 45, 6 and 7 says of Christ's throne, his rule, the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Jesus rules as king precisely in accordance with the will and rule of his heavenly father. His heart is not turned away to the world and it's offered strength. Of course, you think of the great moment in Matthew 4 when Satan is tempting him and he promises, I will give you all the glory of the kingdoms of the world. All you have to do is worship me. And what did Jesus say? It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God. Him only shall you serve. Well, Jesus reigns as king, not by the glory of horses and chariots, but by the humility of his death on the cross in keeping with the will of his Father for our redemption. What did Jesus tell Pontius Pilate? My kingdom is not of this world. Instead, he reigns in the hearts of his people through the Holy Spirit. James Boyce writes, Jesus exercises his rule in this present world, his rule of an individual soul by drawing it to faith in himself and then directing it and secondly by governing and directing his church so that the principles of his kingdom might be seen in his people, that they may move on from that start to have an influence on the unbelieving world. 
Christ reigns by his spirit within our hearts. Well, Jesus doesn't need horses and chariots. He reigns in the power of a sovereign almighty God. In the humility of his cross, yes, but now with legions of angels at his ready command. And of Christ, the angels sing, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory of his throne. Revelation 19, 6 and 7. Well, the final aspect of Solomon's glory, for which he is so widely known, was the glory of his wisdom. Verse 22, King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. It's for this virtue that he prayed when he was first made king. And so God told him that wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. Chapter 1, verse 12. Now, isn't it interesting that we're living in a generation that doesn't really value wisdom very highly? Solomon made wisdom the theme of his book of Proverbs. He said, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding for the gain from her is better than the gain of silver. And her profit is better than gold. Proverbs 3, 13 or 14. Which would you rather have, a pile of gold or wisdom? Proverbs says, if you're wise, you'll seek wisdom. He says, wisdom is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Proverbs 3, 18. Now, wisdom, you know, involves not merely the knowledge of facts, but the proper relationship between means and ends. Wisdom is the way in which believers live in God's truth. Proverbs 4, verse 7 puts the matter strongly. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Get wisdom. It's more valuable than gold. Well, Solomon's wisdom was so prodigious that the queen of Sheba, who we saw in the previous pastor, was only the beginning of royal visitors who started streaming to Jerusalem to sit and listen to wise King Solomon. Verse 23, all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Like him, they valued wisdom more greatly than gold, and so they gave him gold out of awe for his insight. Verse 24, each of them brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, mules, so much year by year. Well, our Lord Jesus Christ displays a glory of wisdom that exceeds, yes, even that of famous Solomon. In all the centuries since God had given his law to Moses, no one had ever expounded that law with a wisdom and insight that compares to what Jesus set forth in his Sermon on the Mount. How priceless are those three chapters of Matthew's Gospel alone for divine wisdom. And his wisdom was founded on a knowledge of God's word that frankly only the author could possess. How often did Jesus disarm his opponents by wisely bringing up a question, a quotation from the Old Testament. And then his parables, his parables, they're glorious not only for their depth of insight, but also for the glorious way in which they, the manner, the wise manner in which they disarm our opposition. Oh, how hard it is for us to receive truth with an open heart. And Jesus, in the wisdom of his parables, he opens the door for that to happen. Isaiah said of him, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 11 verse 2. Now more even than what Jesus said, 
What he did involves a wisdom that perplexes the highest human philosophy. Jesus died on the cross to to conquer the power and reign of sin. In doing that, he confounded all the wisdom of the world. Here's how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 1, 21 to 23. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Through its wisdom, the world did not know God. But it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And here's how he concludes in 1 Corinthians 2.8. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Well, if the wisdom seekers of the ancient world made pilgrimages to hear Solomon, the prophet Micah, Isaiah has the same prophecy, but Micah foretells what's happening in our day. It's the glory of Christ's wisdom with a far greater effect than Solomon's from his saving work. Micah said, the nation shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may, that we may walk in his paths. Micah 4 verse 2. Micah was looking forward to the worldwide spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ, giving what Paul calls the wisdom of salvation for those who believe. Now, Solomon's influence was very impressive, but even so, it encompassed a relatively small portion of the world. If you draw a circle on a globe of the portion of the world that Solomon knew about, it's actually a pretty small portion of the world. But now in places that Solomon, for all his knowledge, didn't even know existed, there are converts streaming into the church to hear the wisdom of the Messiah proclaimed in his gospel. Believers in China, sub-Saharan Africa, the northern reaches of Europe, not to mention the entire Western Hemisphere, are led by God's Spirit to sit at Jesus' feet and gain the wisdom that leads to eternal life. I wonder if you realize, since Jesus is God's own Son, He's the one and the only Savior whom God has provided to all the ages of this world. Then what Job declared concerning wisdom is fully discovered in Christ's word. Here's what Job said. It cannot be bought for gold. Silver cannot be weighed at its price. It cannot be valued valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. Job 28, 15-17. But here's the thing. What you could never buy, he gives to you freely. It's freely available to those who come in faith, to Jesus in faith through his word. Isaiah challenges you, therefore, to seek that wisdom from Christ that Isaiah compares to a feast for the soul. He says, why do you spend your money for that which cannot satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich fare. Incline your ear. Come to me and your soul will live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Oh, Jesus offers to you free of charge if you will receive it through faith alone, the wisdom unto eternal life. Well, we've discussed the glory of Solomon's wealth, 
the glory of his throne and the glory of Solomon's wisdom. And there is a problem with it. The main problem of Solomon's glory is that like every other glory in this world, it passed away. What the Roman slave whispered into the conqueror's ear is true. Thus passes the glory of the world. We see this in the final three verses of the chapter, which note, after showing how Solomon's deeds were recorded, it tells us that Solomon passed from the world. The rest of the Acts of Solomon, verse 29, from first to last, are written in the history of Nathan the prophet, in the prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite, in the visions of Iddo the seer, concerning Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel for 40 years, and Solomon slept with his fathers. He was buried in the city of David his father, and Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. And so when Solomon departed from Jerusalem, his glory went with him. Now, chapter 10 is going to reveal that Solomon did not pass on his wisdom to his son, Rehoboam. And without wisdom, the foolish king lost his wealth and power too. Now, here's a reason why Solomon's glory was only a type. It was not his glory, really. It was a type of the true glory that is in Jesus Christ. Psalm 45, 6 says of Jesus alone, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And for that re reason, his wisdom and his wealth will also never fail. If Israel trusted in Solomon while well, they were ultimately disappointed, he was not able to endure along with his glory. But the man or woman who commits him or herself and their eternal soul to Jesus Christ will find a secure salvation, an eternal salvation. Why? Because he does not pass away. I've always loved Hebrews 7.25, speaking of the eternal reign of the Lord Jesus, and it says he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. Well, I don't think it's controversial to say that you and I live in a time when it's the glory of gold that is most impressive to the minds of people, just as the bulk of this chapter actually focuses on the glory of Solomon's fabulous wealth. But the problem with trusting in the glory of riches is they neither last nor really ever satisfy. In fact, it was late in his life that Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes to present how foolish he had been to allow this gold to get into his heart, not just on the shields around him, but to start trusting and delighting in the gold he amassed. Here's what he says in Ecclesiastes 2.1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. And then he said, behold, this is vanity. That's what he saw. Ecclesiastes 5.10 is his discovery. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Moreover, even if we do enjoy our money, one problem is it can be so easily taken away. And we are finishing up the reign of Solomon. We now start the reign of, of Rehoboam. It's only going to be the chapter after next when all those golden shields are removed. He's a fool, so he doesn't know how to do the, manage the country. And Shishak, the king of Egypt, is going to come up. He's going to take the gold away. All those shields will be removed. 
The glory of gold is fleeting. Jesus spoke a parable about how foolish it is to glory in your wealth. A certain man was so rich like Solomon that he had to keep building larger storehouses for his grain and his goods. And just when he was celebrating all this, speaking to his soul, apparently he didn't have anybody else to talk to. All he cared about was his money. He said, relax, eat, drink, be merry. And right at that moment, God came to him with unexpected news. Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? Luke 12, verse 20. You see, just like the passing glory of this world, the so-called security of riches can swiftly vanish when we need it the most. Jesus concluded, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Luke 12, 21. Well, how can we avoid the folly of earthly riches and glory and become rich towards God unto eternal life? Well, one answer is for us to treasure the word of God. In Psalm 19, verse 10, David said of the word of God, it is more to be desired than gold even much fine gold. And through the wisdom of the Holy Scripture, we will discover a glory that is greater than the glory of this world. Yes, even greater than the glory of Solomon, because it never passes away. I've often rejoiced in the way Paul puts it in Colossians 4, verse 6. He's been talking about preaching the word of God and and the wisdom it gives, and he says it shines in our hearts, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. That's what shines in our hearts through God's word, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus offers a glory of riches that exceeds that of Solomon, both in its value and eternal endurance. You think of how Revelation 21 depicts the eternal city that awaits those who trust in Christ with a a richness in gold far vaster even than that of Solomon. But it's set amidst symbols of eternal permanence and endurance. It's a city that will never pass away. Its foundations and walls are founded on the word of God in the Old and New Testaments. Revelation 21, 9 to 14. And just as Jesus' throne excels the glory of Solomon's ivory and golden throne, so also it endures forever with a kingdom that can never fail. You think of what the angel said to Mary at the beginning of his incarnation, at the very announcement of his virgin birth. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Indeed, the glory of Jesus' wisdom gives us counsel that will enrich us now. What would Jesus then say to us? What would be his glorious wisdom in light of these things? Well, he puts it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. If all these things are true, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. He concluded, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Matthew 6, 19 to 33. Well, much as it pains me to say it, since I have long been an admirer of the American General George Patton, the truth is that he was wrong when he said that all glory is fleeting. He should have said, 
almost all glory is fleeting. Or, or maybe all worldly glory is fleeting. Because there is a glory that does not pass away. The glory of Jesus Christ, God's Son, in his richest throne and wisdom will last forever and ever so that enduring wealth is gained only through a trusting faith in him for salvation. Why is that, you might say? Well, Paul gives the answer in Romans eleven thirty six. Here is why. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for the glory of Solomon such as it was. But Lord, if he could be ensnared by that, with what peril do we find ourselves? We thank you that in your word you reveal the glory of Christ, the glory of his riches and salvation, the glory of his reign as king and his throne, the glory of his wisdom. We can only say the half was not told to us. How wonderful it is that you have given us eyes to see that glory above, the glory that is to come. And Father, we would seek him. We would seek your kingdom above all, knowing that anything else we need, you will provide. May you have glory forever. Amen.